touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and today I have a good friend on the show with me, Steve Rickenberg. Say hello, Steve. Hello, Internet. So, Steve, uh, you do several things in the Internet world and including a, a show that uh, that you did for quite some time. Are you still doing Geek Cred or is it's, that just it's on, on It's on hiatus. I'm hoping to bring it back soon. But, yeah, it's, it's been a while since I put out a new episode. Yeah. So Geek Cred is a, a series that where Steve will interview various people in the geek sphere. And for episode 43, I was one off. But episode forty three, I was the I was the the um the subject. I was grilled mercilessly by Steve, and told all my secrets. So if you want to hear the secrets of Jonathan Strickland, go check out Geek Cred episode forty three, and check out the rest while you're at it because they are awesome shows. And I don't know how you landed so many amazing guests. <laughs> uh, you are more charming than I am. But the reason why I asked Steve on is that I got a listener mail. And I immediately thought of Steve as the person to pull on here and talk about things. So here's the mail that I received. And I apologize, listener. I have lost your name because you sent the email before the great, terrible email crash of September 2014, uh, in which all of the old tech stuff emails got wiped out, willy and or nilly. So I apologize. I do not have your name, but I do have the content of your email. And here we go. You guys have in tech stuff touched on a lot of this stuff, but I don't think there's really been one on audio recording from start to finish. I think it could be pretty interesting to hear tech stuff's take on this and be extremely useful to people wanting to get into and know stuff about how audio is captured. So Steve uh, is an audio producer, audio engineer extraordinaire. Uh, and I have had the pleasure of sitting on a panel with him at DragonCon twice now about audio production where uh, I get to play the person who doesn't know anything and Steve gets to play the person who knows everything because that's who we are. So <laughs> that's why I've had Steve on and we've worked it out and kind of uh, covered the entire audio production 101 uh, idea for this podcast. So to start, we were thinking about going into setting up the whole idea of audio equipment from the microphone all the way to the actual recording hardware and software. So the microphone is the starting point, really. And there are several different kinds out there. So, mm -hmm. Steve, can you run us through what are the basic uh, recording microphones that your average person is going to encounter? Sure. Yeah, there are two real main varieties you see and and the difference is really just how they how they convert sound waves into an electrical signal. And by microphone varieties, I really mean how they vary by their transducer, which is to say how they convert air pressure into an electrical signal or by air pressure, like we usually just call it, you know, sound. Mm -hmm. um, so there are two types, like I said, condenser and dynamic microphones. And, and they're really usually seen in very different types of uses or environments. So the first is a condenser microphone, which is sometimes called a capacitor because it essentially has a big capacitor. It requires power to work. So you have a charged plate, which acts as the capacitor. And what happens is the voltage changes by vibration in the air, by the air pressure. Mm -hmm. So this is really in stark contrast to the way a dynamic microphone works, which works via um, induction. So you have a magnet 
And when sound hits the magnet, it generate there's a magnetic field, and so when sound hits it, it generates the signal. So practically, what's what's the difference here? So condensers, as a rule, tend to be a lot more sensitive. So you'll see condensers used in things like recording studios for music or or things like that, where it's usually a very controlled environment because the downside of a condenser is that it's also very sensitive. So it can pick up all sorts of other stuff you don't want. Right. And a dynamic is, in fact, I'm using a dynamic microphone right now. A dynamic doesn't require power, which makes it a little bit more universally usable, but it's not as sensitive. Um, the, the nice thing about dynamics is they're also very rugged. Um, when you see dynamics used in broadcasting and podcasting, as well as in live sound, you can actually the venerable SM58, which is kind of the standard that all microphones or certainly uh, dynamic microphones are measured against, you know, 40 years into its lifespan is kind of known for being so rugged. You can pound nails with it and the microphone will still work like it did on the, when it was brand new. Yeah, this is um something that I learned the hard way. When I was looking at microphones for my own use, uh, my earliest microphone that I had, uh, keeping in mind, like I, I didn't have any expertise in this area. I, I knew some stuff uh, largely due to the work of, of folks like Steve, who had uh, very patiently taught me things despite my my ignorance. Um, but I got a condenser mic first and I realized that the tiniest sounds would get picked up by this microphone. Things like yeah. my dog running across the the floor, I could hear the toenails clicking on the hardwood. Um, and or if someone dropped a coin in the house and it was three rooms away, <laughs> I believe it got it. yeah, it got picked up. And so it was one of those things where if I if I really wanted to get a soundscape of a really controlled environment, so I'm setting this thing up, that would have been a, a fantastic tool but for mm -hmm. someone who just wants to talk into a microphone um then the dynamic microphones seem to be the most useful to me sure yeah there's there's very good practical reason why dynamic microphones at least in the u.s are pretty much the standard for for radio and for broadcasting yeah now there's more about microphones than just dynamic versus condenser right yeah besides, besides that simple uh delineation mm-hmm uh, I, I, I do want to mention real quick, there are other types of microphones. These yes. are the two most common. Um, there's even a subset of condensers, which is electric condenser microphones, which is what you usually see in consumer electronics. So your your phone's microphone or your headset's microphone is, is an electric condenser because those are really cheap and easy to manufacture. You also have other types like ribbons used for high-end recording. There are actually a multiple, multitude of types of microphones, but these two are really the the ones you're going to see if you're going to do any recording yourself. It's really picking between these two types. Right. Uh, then you have to consider what are, what style of mic, as in how is it picking up sound? Where is it pulling sound from? Sure. Is it directional or not? Yeah. I mean, you, you have the pickup or, or the polar pattern. A nice way to understand this is, is to look at a graph of the, of the pickup pattern. Uh, for example, an omnidirectional picks up in 360 degrees. It's all all picks up sound from all directions equally. Um, but in a in a directional microphone, for example, uh, the most common form of that is a cardioid microphone. Cardioid as in heart because it looks like a you know simple heart shape upside down. Mm -hmm. So so what what that shows that it rejects some of the sound from the sides and from the rear and focuses more on the sound coming from the front of the microphone. Right. So again, depending upon the use of your mic, you would want a specific type. So for 
example, with me talking into this microphone here, I really want to limit where sound can come from and be picked mm-hmm. up by the microphone because anything that's extraneous from me talking is going to be distracting. But in other environments, you might want to have that mm-hmm. coverage. So, for example, if I were doing a podcast with a group of friends and we were sitting around a table, an omnidirectional microphone just to pick up that natural conversation could be perfectly legitimate. Absolutely. So we've got the microphones. Uh, we've got the basis there, uh, what they do and what their their differences are. Uh, you mentioned that condenser microphones need to have a power source. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions we received was uh, to clarify what phantom power is. Now, does it mean that the microphone is haunted? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. Um, phantom power is, is quite simply uh, the standard is, is a 48 volt signal. This can be provided via an external battery if you're out recording in the field. But most commonly, it's transmitted through the microphone cable from the mixer or the audio interface Mm -hmm. that can provide the phantom power to allow the microphone to work. So you don't need any external equipment. But that's that's really all it is. It's a 48 volt power. Well, that's good. See, So now we know that that is the uh, power source that keeps the condenser microphone going, the one that the condenser microphone requires for it Mm -hmm. to operate simply because of the basic mechanism through which it converts yeah, the, air the, pressure the into fundamental principle the way yeah. it works yes yeah and uh I, I like how you moved into all of that too because it's it, it it is good for us to remember that sound is a physical thing it's molecules that are bouncing against each other and eventually making contact with your eardrum which moves some little cilia like finger uh, projections inside your uh, ear and then that gets interpreted as sound in our brains. So it's interesting to think that the microphone is doing something similar, except in this case, it's converting it into an electric current as opposed to a signal that our brain interprets. It mm-hmm. actually has to be, go through that conversion process again when you're ready to play the sound back in whatever you know way you're doing that with whatever kind of speaker you're using. But uh, it's interesting to keep that in mind as well. So now that we've covered the basics, we've covered the the polar patterns, I have to ask you another question that was uh, posed by the listener about the idea of balanced versus unbalanced cables. I don't know what that means. Sure, sure. Balanced versus unbalanced. Okay. In, in most in most cables, you have either two conductor or three conductor cables. So you mm-hmm. have, you know, tip or sleeve would be a mono unbalanced cable. Tip ring or sleeve could be a stereo unbalanced cable or a mono balanced cable. Now, the difference between balanced and unbalanced is effectively comes down to on a balanced cable, you have the because you have it twice, you have it phase reversed. It really limits any outside interference because the microphone cable can otherwise kind of act as an antenna, picking up all sorts of electromagnetic noise that's in your environment that you might not hear um, normally, but you would it would make it into the recording. So balanced cables aren't the end of the world. I mean, most consumer gear is all unbalanced. It's just you want to limit the run with a with or uh, is unbalanced rather. Most consumer gear. Uh, ba- the advantage of balance is you can do a long run and not have to worry about getting all that extra noise. Gotcha. Uh, well, that makes sense. I mean, we've seen that in lots of different forms of electronics with various cables, and one of the the dangers you run in is if you have 
uh, a cable with poor shielding, then you can get a lot of interference that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I remember using really inexpensive earbuds, for example, that would pick up interference from, uh, radio sources like a cell phone and you get that terrible did it, did it sound yep, every time yep. one would go off. All right. Well, then we've covered the cables. Let me ask you about one of the settings that I find on microphones, the microphone gain. Yes, and that really kind of brings us into microphone level versus line level. Uh huh. Yeah, because there a microphone level comes in much lower than your standard line level. You know, a microphone needs that extra oomph to bring it up to line level. So that's mm-hmm. where you have the microphone gain, which which is to it, how much gain you're going to need for a given microphone varies one by its type. Condensers need less gain typically than dynamics, for example, because dynamics are passive. And just, but each microphone is different in general as far as how much gain you'll need to get it to a proper line level. Cool. Now we also have the concept of a recording level where you're trying to set a level for, uh, making sure that you get a nice sound out of what you're trying to record. You don't want to have any peaks that are going to go beyond that recording level because then you get this terrible distorted sound. And so one of the questions that was sent in was, why are things recorded in negative decibels? And to really understand that first, we need to remember that decibels, uh, that's a relative scale. We often think of decibels as being kind of, uh, a certain scale that five decibel sound, a 20 decibel sound, a 25 decibel sound, uh, that these are, these are hard and fast numbers, but it really is relative and it's logarithmic. So, the decibels are really meant to describe a relationship between two different mm-hmm. things. And and decibels are not just for sound either, but we use it for sound specifically. But yeah. you you could use it to describe the intensity of two different signals. And the, the decibels kind of describe the gap that's between the two, like how much more or less intense one signal is compared to the other one. Exactly. So... When we get to the idea of negative decibels, it doesn't mean that it is negative loud. Right? You can't, you can't, you can't have a negative (laughs) amount of sound where it would be, this kind of descriptive, uh, conversation makes me think that if we were in spinal tap right now, it would be the most confusing conversation to the band. (laughs) Why are you going negative decibels? We want it, we want it to be more louder. It would make no sense to them. But the idea of the negative is so that you can set those parameters where if you go beyond those parameters, that's where you run into trouble. Do, do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do want to kind of preface this as, like you said, decibel can be used for all sorts of things. And there are all sorts of different standards, even with an audio recording uh, related to decibels. When you're talking about, you know, negative decibels, that's usually referring to dB full scale or, or dBFS, which is what we use in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. But you also have, you know, dBV or as in V for voltage, uh, which is what you see usually in the analog world. So it gets even more confusing because zero, you know, a zero dBVU like you'd see in analog is actually equivalent to negative 18 dB full scale. <laughs> um, so it it can get a little bit hard to wrap your head around if you're expecting, you know, one, you know, you see, it's like, I'm right at perfect zero D, DB on my mixer, but wait, 
Why is it coming in this low? It's it's designed to be able to have that extra headroom because in, in the analog world, you could go above zero dB. It it would thicken up the sound, but it, sometimes that that high frequency distortion, that subtle high frequency distortion, was was desirable. But yeah. in the digital world, zero dB is kind of like the speed of light. You can't go above that, or like overexposing a photo on a digital camera where it's just all blown out white. It's the same thing. Anything above zero dB, it just can't. There's no, you know, you can't go past the speed of light. Anything right. beyond that, it just can't handle. Right. So that's where you would get into, you know, really awful digital artifacts in the in the recorded sound and why you would want to have that set. So just for a general rule of thumb, what what do you usually look for? Like what how do you usually set your levels for recording? What do you think is a good kind of uh, scale to look at? Sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, because you can't go above zero dB, you want to make sure your signal is high enough, but you still want to have enough headroom for that variation. Um, a great rule of thumb is just a negative peak between negative 12 and negative six mm-hmm. or, or somewhere around there. So that if you get a little more excited and get a little louder, you're, you're hopefully leaving enough headroom so that you're not going to clip, which clip, clip or go above zero. Right. So, uh, if you've ever watched a video where someone does suddenly go from one level of volume to a much greater level of volume. I'm thinking of several let's plays that I've watched where uh, <laughs> they were playing PT, uh, the, the, yes. the trailer that's for silent Hills. Uh, that's a terrifying trailer. And I've seen people or I've watched videos where people started screaming and then you get the terrible clipping because they, yes. they weren't yeah, the, yeah, anticipating the that. This kind of essentially makes this kind of ear bleeding distortion that you don't want to listen to. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a general rule of thumb is you want to avoid that. So similar to this, we have the concept of equalization EQ and the various frequencies. Uh, I know that anyone who had a good stereo back in the eighties had that series of, sliders that they could choose to play with mm-hmm. for the different frequencies. And, uh, you know, everyone had their own secret sauce and what they thought was important, but no one on the, just the basic consumer level seemed to really appreciate what those, those different sliders were for. Uh, but when it boils down to it, it really comes down to, to essentially a, a volume or intensity knob for sounds that occur within a certain frequency range, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, remember, the the range of human hearing is approximately 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. At least if you don't, you know, usually for younger people, the older you get, you tend to lose some of those higher frequencies naturally, mm-hmm. or if you've been to too many loud concerts. Um, or on the low end, like 20 hertz, that's usually so low. It's actually sub-audible, but you're, you feel it. Yeah. So you're still you're still kind of experiencing when the sound frequency is that low. Um so, you know, the mids, if you're, if you're doing any equalization, you know, the mid level isn't going to be 10,000 hertz because human hearing is, is logarithmic. So usually when you see mids, um, you might see, you know, if you're adjusting the mids, it's going to be, you know, 2.5 kilohertz, you know, 2,500 hertz, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Well, that's an important thing also to keep in mind. But what I love is that you are essentially having control over these various ranges of frequencies. So that's why the bass slider it is really what's doing is it's boosting the signal, boosting the intensity of any sound wave that falls in that frequency. It's not mm-hmm. that it magically inserts boost uh, a bass where there was no bass before. There has to have been a signal at that frequency for something to get 
uh, played at a, essentially a louder volume or recorded at a louder volume. Um, so, cause I had friends. I mean, I remember back in, in school where I had friends who would, their magic sauce was just to turn that bass slider all the way up to 10 and say, this is going to be amazing. And then they'd get disappointed and I'd say, well, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have some sound waves in that frequency range for anything mm-hmm. to have happened. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's, you know, another little, a little misconception I'd like to clear up. And then, we get into something that frankly tends to, to make my head swim when we start talking about the concept of samples and, uh, bit rate and bit depth. Ah, yes. So getting this into the digital audio world. This is, this is really where I think a lot of our listeners fall into people who want to record because digital recording equipment is very easy to get hold of. Um, even just very basic equipment that is, good enough for, you know, your average stuff that you want to do. Maybe if you're not going for a truly professional level recording, you can get away with a lot of, in fact, a lot of the stuff that's on the consumer market that's not very expensive can, in under the right conditions, sound like professional level recording. But this is where we start talking about the amount of information you're packing into a file, because when you get down to it, that's what digital, that's what digital recording is all about. It's recording things in sequences of zeros and ones, and eventually that starts to take up file space. So with analog signals, one of the things to keep in mind is that the the sounds we produce, the, the waves we produce are continuous and they're variable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we have to process that uh, and ter- in order to, for it to become digital. Uh, digital is not all about these continuous Waves. Instead, a digital uh, file ends up sampling that wave. And by sampling, you can think of it kind of like a snapshot, uh, a, a very quick photograph of one particular part of that wave. And so each sample is, a quant- is quantized to a finite number of bits. And what was once a continuous wave of sound now gets represented as that series of, of uh, bits of zeros and ones. And, uh, Really, what comes down to it is how many times do you sample that wave? Uh, what's the frequency of your sampling? That kind of determines the resolution of the file. So uh, if you weren't sampling it very frequently, uh, you would have a pretty poor quality sounding uh, uh, file. It would end up being, um, well, less fidelity, I guess you could say. Like uh, the quality for telephone calls and cell phone calls is fairly low because you just have to have it be high enough so that the average person can understand yeah. what the other person is saying. For something like a recorded uh, medium like CDs, you want it much higher, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is where we get into the idea of bit depth. That's the number of bits within a sample. So this is really the sample resolution. And you've got different types of uh, bit sampling rates. So CD audio uses 16 bits per sample. Blu-ray goes to 24 bits per sample. And this is where you're able to represent more subtle differences uh, in the level of the sound as opposed to trying to flatten everything out. Uh, that's part of it anyway. Sampling rate will refer to the number of samples of an analog signal taken every second. So a continuous wave uh, is going through. You need to digitize it. You're really just capturing those specific moments. And this is where uh, I had a note, and, and I'm glad that you were able to uh, 
clarify this because it was a little confusing to me. You mentioned the range of human hearing goes from around 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Uh, but when you get to the sample rate of CD sampling, it's at 44.1 kilohertz. Now, can you explain why that is? Yeah, just due to the way digital audio works or just the way sound works, you have essentially you have positive and negative pressure because it's a wave. So in this case, you have positive and minus for, for those each of those values. So effectively, with a 44.1 kilohertz sample rate, the the frequent the possible frequency range that can reproduce is going to be half. So it's going to be 22,050 hertz or right around the limit of human hearing. So that's really that 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 really opened up my eyes because I had read some descriptions about this, but didn't really grasp it until you had clarified. So I'm very thankful to have you on the show. Not to say there aren't reasons for going above that sample rate, um, but it's usually more specialized uses. You might because you you there will be some getting. It's real complicated stuff, but there will be some. You can see, have some aliasing, some artifacts in those very high frequencies. So sometimes for recording where fidelity is, you know, ultimate, they might record at a higher sample rate. Um, or, or sometimes you'll see for sound design, they'll record at a higher sample rate because they're going to slow it down so much to get that, you know, alien otherworldly sound that you need that extra, those extra samples for it to, for it to work. So in, in, uh, terms of like a, a digital photograph, this would be like wanting to have more megapixels because you plan to eventually blow up that, that picture to many times its original sure, size. Yes. Yeah. Great analogy. Yeah. So one of the things I saw was that you can find sampling rates hitting levels around 192 kilohertz. That's way higher than what you find in the CD sampling rate. And one of the the thought processes behind this is that it captures ultrasonic frequencies when you start getting into that that level. And those ultrasonic frequencies, uh, those aren't perceptible to us on their own. We wouldn't be able to hear them. This would be mm-hmm. at a frequency far above human hearing. However, they can affect some other signals that we do hear. This is called intermodulation distortion. So that's when inaudible parts of the sound spectrum start to interact with audible parts. What's interesting to me is that this is not something that you find present during the actual live performance of the sound. It is truly an artifact of the digitizing mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. but it might be a desirable one depending upon the effect you're trying to achieve. So to me, it's interesting that you're recording sound that technically is, is kind of not there. <laughs> At least not, it's not perceptible to you in the live performance of the recording, mm-hmm. but then you can hear the effect once you're listening back to the recording. Before we move on, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor is Little Bits. Now, Little Bits is the easiest and most extensive way to learn and prototype with electronics. So they're making hardware limitless with an award-winning, ever-growing library of electronic modules. And they range from the very simple, like power or uh, sensors or LED light, to the very complex, such as wireless modules or programmable modules. And there are more than 60 modules and trillions of billions of combinations that are possible. It moves electronics from the hands of experts to the hands of everyone. And they're used by makers, artists, designers, engineers, students, and podcast hosts. They sent me a kit. I got to experiment with it. The first thing I built was a joy buzzer 
It was really simple. I used a power module, a couple of wire modules, uh, a button and a buzzer, and they link up magnetically. Nothing could be easier. You don't have to do any soldering. You don't have to do any wiring. It's all built for you. And really, you just let your imagination take control. Well, Little Bits is offering new customers $20 off your first kit. So go to littlebits.com and enter the promo code TechStuff when you place your order, and you'll receive $20 off your first kit plus free shipping to the United States. So littlebits.com, and don't forget that promo code TechStuff when you place your order. All right, so we've talked about sample rate. Then you have bit rate. That's the amount of information conveyed or processed per unit of time. So a kilobit per second would be a bit rate. That's not a good one, but it, it would be one. <laughs> uh, but a high-quality sure. bit rate would be closer to like 192 kilobits per second. Um, and the maximum supported by the MP3 format is 320 kilobits per second. So there's a formula for figuring out the bit rate, which is the bit rate is equal to the sample rate times the bit depth times the number of channels recorded, because you can have more than one channel of sound being recorded at once. So if you were recording in stereo, you're using an audio CD uh, with a sample rate of 44.1 kilohertz, a bit depth of 16. Uh, you've got the stereo, so therefore it's two channels. You would multiply 44,100 times 16 times 2, which, uh, running out of fingers, uh, 1,411,200 bits per second. So that'd be 1,000. A lot of bits. Yeah, 1,411.2 kilobits per second, 1.4 megabits per second. Yeah, that's a lot. And, and that's uncompressed audio, mind you. Yes. Uh, but, but I do think. You mentioned this, but I do want to be clear. It's important to not confuse bit depth, which we talked about earlier, with bit rate. Yeah. Those are two very separate, related, you know, but very separate terms. Right. Bit bit rate depends in part on bit depth along mm-hmm. with the sample rate and how many channels you're recording. Uh, but they are two different concepts. So don't confuse the two, even though they both have bit in the name. Uh, they are two different things. So... Steve, if you were going to record, say, a, a podcast that you wanted to to send out there, you had access to, you know, your general consumer level technology. Uh, what what would be the the rate you would suggest people record at? What what do you think is a good target to aim at? Sure. Um, 44.1 kilohertz is the sample rate I, I would go with because you really don't need more, especially for podcasting. Mm-hmm. It's just the human voice. So there isn't. You know, it's not like you're recording a, you know, dense musical soundscape or something. Right. Unless you've Um, got a bunch of Gregorian monks chanting in the background mm -hmm. or something. (laughs) Sure. That would be a podcast I would listen to. Yeah, I possibly (laughs) I'm I'm working on it, but I've only found one monk and uh, he's not he's not the singing type. So as as far as bit depth, I mean, most consumer stuff records at 16 bit. Some will go to 24 bit, which is where you see most. Uh, pro gear mm-hmm. um th- there is a benefit to going to 24 bit because there are more essentially the, the like we talked about with bit depth the the more bits there are the more values there are to represent changes in volume so it's a finer resolution but 16 bit is still perfectly serviceable if that's all you can do mm-hmm. so with this kind of information this sort of also plays into the the conversation of how mp3s especially early mp3s uh, how they they started to change the nature of recording in a way 
because like you say, you know, when you have, when you have less information in your file, you have to balance that out. You have to figure out what's being kept and, you know, especially for a compressed sound file formats. Uh, and one of the things that the MP3 file format would do is look for things that, that the, algorithm said would be outside of human range of hearing and just cut it out mm-hmm. entirely. So I'm curious, Steve, I know that this isn't in the notes, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on that subject. Well, the type of compression we're talking about here is, is lossy compression. You have lossless compression, which is more akin to like a, a zip file, for example, mm-hmm. where you uncompress it and everything's the exact same as it was with, with MP3, it's lossy or Really, you can think of this a lot like a GIF or, or a JPEG, uh, where, where it's compressing it by throwing away some of that information that it's not quite as important. So you can still see what the image is. You can still hear what's, what was recorded, but it's using psychoacoustics to throw away less important stuff to be able to make that file size a lot smaller. Yeah. So now if you were going to listen to music, if you were going to say, I want to purchase a digital file of a song, what file format do you choose? Honestly, even as an audio engineer, I don't see as much of a benefit for, for lossless. Now, there, not that there isn't a benefit. You know, there, you know you're getting a pristine recording when it's lossless, when it's in FLAC or Apple lossless, which, which is what a lot of really hardcore audio files will turn, will turn to. Mm-hmm. But honestly, for me, I did that whole lossless thing for a while, but at this point, as long as it's a decent bit rate, I'll go with, you know, MP3 or AAC. So the, you know, 256 kilobit, you know, AAC you get from iTunes is perfectly serviceable to me for, for listening purposes. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, and I, I feel that since I've got you on and uh, you can't go until I, I conclude the episode. And I, You've uh, got me locked in a cage. Yeah, I effectively have you hostage Let me out. here. Uh, so here's, here's the next question since we can start looking at some myths around audio engineering. For the audio files out in the audience, the, the folks who, uh, who are looking to have a nice sound system to listen to things on, what about those super high premium cables? Do they uh. really have <laughs> the benefit of other more basic cables? And in a word, no, certainly for digital cable, if it's, a, you know, it's digital, it's going to work or it's not going to work. There isn't really much of a middle ground analog. Eh, you can make an argument, but those over those, you know, super expensive, that $60 monster cable isn't going to be significantly different from that $5 store brand cable. Certainly. Right. Especially if you're talking about something where. You know, it's got decent shielding on it. You're not going to have to worry about interference through that. You know, because electromagnetic interference can happen if you don't have good mm-hmm. shielding on your cable. But most cables now, even the the bargain ones, have decent shielding on them. It's not that difficult to implement. Uh, I feel the same way on this subject as well. It's one of those things where you might be able to, with the proper uh sensors, detect minute differences in analog cables like super high premium versus your basic cables but that's beyond human perception Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely so uh okay well again we're gonna go with another one here analog versus digital media formats are you a vinyl guy are you going to listen to your eight (laughs) tracks cds Uh, just digital files what's what's up 
Uh, can of worms there. I'm I'm a digital guy, but that's the generation I am. But yeah. you do bring up a good topic is, you know, you have some audiophiles that still cling to their vinyl. And and I do understand why, because due to the nature of, of those, it produce produces high frequency distortion, which makes it pleasurable to listen to. So I understand why there's still that love for vinyl other than just simple nostalgia, which I get too. Um, but you can kind of simulate that um, through effects on, on a digital recording to kind of get that same effect. Yeah. I, I have a lot of vinyl at my house, uh, although I don't currently have a working turntable. So that's kind of, it's just sort of keeping up space right now. But um, <laughs> but I I have also felt that the vinyl experience, it it's almost more like it's a personalized experience to the listener in the sense that vinyl albums, the more you listen to them, the more they will develop some wear over the course of their existence. Mm, mm-hmm. And that actually changes the quality of the sound, whether it's the wear and tear on the needle or it's the wear and tear on the vinyl album itself, that changes the quality of the sound. And that can become part of your experience. It doesn't necessarily make the song better or worse. It makes it a different experience. And I think that's part of what the charm is. Uh, there are also people who claim that the sound from vinyl is a warmer sound, but I'm not entirely certain what that's supposed to mean because most people find it difficult to articulate what a warm mm-hmm, sound is mm-hmm. versus one that isn't. And I've also read some great studies where people were put into uh, rooms to listen to music, not told whether or not it was going to be an analog source versus a digital source. And if it's a double blinded test, it seems like most people can't tell the difference. Yeah. It's it's yeah. just too subtle for, for we mere mortals. Yeah, even if it's the exact same source signal, the difference between analog versus digital is really hard to tell. Yeah. So just busting some myths out there, folks, to uh, help you guys out if you're uh, interested in either recording or you just want to set up a nice listening environment. Uh, Steve, is there anything else you would like to cover as far as the the audio recording 101 uh, setup sure one one thing we skipped over uh is connect cable connectors we talked about unbalanced versus balanced cables sure. and the significance of that but you're going to see different types of connectors for connecting your your audio and, and it'll vary depending on whether it's professional use or more consumer use so there are four main types that i i really identify so on the consumer side, you have your standard 3.5 millimeter, sometimes called one eighth inch, because it's really metric or metric or imperial. Still, still the same size though. Mm-hmm. This is what you see for your, you know, usually you see for your headphones, uh, for your whether it's for your phone or for something else, or connecting your computer to speakers, for example. The computer out is going to be a 3.5 millimeter jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other consumer type you'll you'll see, especially on older equipment, is RCA. Um, which are those two? Usually, you have if it's a stereo signal, you have two connectors. So one one is white, one is red for left and right. But these both of these consumer types are always going to be unbalanced due to the nature of them. Mm-hmm. So on the pro side, you have quarter inch cables, kind of like your one eighth, three point five millimeter cable, but just super sized. Uh, and you have XLR cables. Uh, the XLR cables is what you see from connecting microphones primarily. Um, it's it's a little bit different. It's a three pin. It's a three pin connector. So with XLR, it's a three pin connector where you have positive, negative, and ground, much like you have on on a tip ring sleeve, where you have positive, negative, and ground. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I uh, the the microphone I am speaking into for recording is an XLR microphone. Actually, the microphone that Steve is hearing me on, however, is a USB microphone, uh, which is one of the other types you might run into for those that that connect directly to a computer. Sure. Uh, and that one is the reason why I'm using two, dear listeners, is because our original setup, uh, Steve could not hear me. And while that would have been an interesting podcast, <laughs> we decided ultimately that being able to hear one another was was probably the best choice. So, uh, yeah, the USB microphones, those are really popular these days because they tend to be relatively inexpensive and they're incredibly easy to use. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, for the people who don't want to have to deal with, um, lots of tweaking of audio, uh, levels, then it's, it's kind of plug and play with some variations. I mean, most of them have a couple of different settings where you can choose, like, especially the condenser based ones have different settings you can choose so you can, uh, determine what fields they can record from, whether it's omnidirectional or not. But, uh, sure. in general, I, uh, I like the XLR ones a lot more. Uh, it just, it's, um, it tends to be a bit more of a, an investment just for all the stuff that you're going to need. Sure. You know, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's the great thing about USB. You have the microphone, you connect the USB cable to your computer, you're done. Yeah. It has that digital. To, or that analog to digital converter r- rather built in. It has a preamp built in. Um, with an XLR microphone, you're going to need more equipment. You're going to need a mixer or an audio interface to bring that up to, to bring that microphone level up to line level and then something to, whether it's a computer or something else, to digitize that signal. Right. Or a USB does all of that. Yeah. So for those of us who, uh, who like the simpler life, it's, it's a, it's a real benefit. Um, one of the wonderful things that I can rely upon is the fact that I work for how stuff works and we have an audio podcast recording studio and all of this stuff gets set up for me. So I really live in the lap of luxury as far as that's concerned. <laughs> but if you're really doing it on your own, these are the sort of things you just, you know, the basics that you need to know. It's not that you mm-hmm. necessarily have to go and take a full course in audio engineering, but knowing some simple, basic rules of thumb to follow will really guide you in the right the right direction for you to have really good audio quality. So um, sure. I really appreciate you coming on the show and and Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll probably have you on again. We'll talk about something completely unrelated to audio engineering. Uh it'll maybe be a discussion about your favorite type of uh of starship in the Star Trek universe. Sure. And your answer will be USS Reliant because that's the best one. <laughs> uh, Clearly, you've put a lot of thought I, into this question. I will, yeah. USS Reliant is my favorite starship in Star Trek. So not related at all to sound engineering, but I I felt that it was on my chest and I needed to express it. it it's unrelated as far as it's cool. Yes. So, yeah. so, sure. so Steve, uh, where can people find your work if they if they they've heard the stuff that sounds amazing? They want to know more about what you do. Where can they go? Gosh, I'm I'm all over the internet. Uh, Geek Cred, which Jonathan mentioned at the top of the show, you can find over at geekcred.net. Uh, you can kind of get in touch with me through steverickyberg.com or follow me on Twitter at steverickyberg to see what I'm up to. Fantastic. Steve, thank you so much again. And listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I'm so thrilled. This is this has been a, a grand experiment, having one of my buddies uh, distantly recording as I record so that you listeners can have the greatest experience possible. 
Now, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's someone I should interview or a topic that you've always wanted to hear more about, maybe it's a type of technology or a company or a personality in tech, let me know. Send me a message. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. My handle at all three is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.